A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast, and as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. most spellbinding sight of all, the snow-covered beaks of the mighty Rockies. For this is a city of contrasts, of old world and new, of the wonders of modern science and the traditions of ancient tribal customs. The way of life here is part British, part American, with such innovations like the supermarket and supers that were, symbolizing the American influence. A city of contrasts, of sophisticated city life, and the magnificent solitude of mountain slopes and forests. Undoubtedly, there's still a lot to be said for the expression, Go West, young man! Hello, and welcome again to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. I have a very interesting story for you today from the Calgary area. It's actually from Stettler, Alberta, but close enough. I had to drag through the old newspaper archives for this one. It is definitely an oldie, but very good one. And one that I bet you don't know much about. It dates back to 1959, and there's a disgusting and bloody mass murder, an escape from a mental hospital, and an execution of a man that claims he's innocent. So it has all the ingredients of the stories that I know, if you want to be honest and admit, you love, because I love them too. I'm actually surprised that they haven't made movies about this one. And while looking through these old newspapers from 1959, you kind of do a little bit of going down rabbit holes, and I found a couple of interesting help wanted ads. There were cooks wanted for an Anglican Indian residential school, single, Protestant, able to take charge of kitchen, should be used to working with children. Also, an assistant constable for the town of Coaldale. Applicants must apply in their own handwriting with their age, marital status, and salary expectations, and a photograph. So I guess that was all that it took to be a constable back then. Also, you could rent a four-room furnished lower duplex for $90 a month. I also found this. Now, I am reading this article word, word for word, so do not write me letters about my use of language here. Beaufort, South Carolina. A 19-year-old white Marine private was convicted Monday of raping a 47-year-old Negro woman. The jury did not recommend mercy, making the death sentence mandatory. The Marine Fred Davis of Atlanta, Georgia, will be sentenced Tuesday by General Sessions Judge J. Henry Johnson. If he should be executed, it would be the first recorded case of the execution of a white man for raping a Negro woman in the United States. I could not find any record of any Fred Davis that was actually executed. So it sounds like 1959 was maybe not particularly a historic year for race relations. But apparently a James Toller was executed for murder and robbery on March 19th of 1957. 
Not sure how I feel about that genealogy, but maybe I should do that story. But what would I find out about my ancestors? Anyways, archives are a lot of fun. You can seriously find yourself going down rabbit holes if you aren't careful. So let's move on to today's case. This is the story of the last man to be hanged in Alberta, Robert Raymond Cook. The following program is brought to you in living color. The Cook family lived a couple of blocks from Main Street on 52nd Street in Stetler, Alberta. Ray Cook Sr. was a mechanic working for the Filipenko Brothers machine shop. He had been married at a young age to a woman that I couldn't find the name of, and together that they had a son named Robert Raymond Cook. When Robert was nine, his mother passed away, and Ray remarried Daisy May Gasper when he was 12. Daisy May had been Robert's grade three and four teacher. In June 1959, when these events happened, Ray, Ray Sr. was 53, Daisy May was 37, and they had five children together, Gerald, Patrick, Christopher, Kathy, and Linda May. Now, I've only seen black and white photos of the three young boys. Gerald was like a clean-cut boy. He had his hair parted on the side and kind of has that leave-it-to-beaver kind of look. There's the style really popular at the time. Patrick had this, he had this really big smile and he wore wireframe glasses again, just looked very classic 1950s. And Christopher shows a cute little guy with this very mischievous grin. Robert Cook at that time was 22 and he had been in trouble off and on for, now I wouldn't say petty crimes, but he, he was known as a car thief and he'd been in jail. He'd actually started to get into trouble when he was only 10 he stole his first car at that time, and he had spent time in the Bowdoin Penitentiary when he was 14. He had worked as a mechanic as well, and his former employer, William McTaggart, had said of him, quote, Robert was always a likable sort of kid. He seemed like a good kid, too, and his dad was sure good to him. But from the time that he was 14 until he was 22, he had actually only been a free man out of prison for a total of 243 days. So he'd obviously been in quite a bit of trouble for stealing cars. And I'm not sure how long anyone could have really gotten to know him, but he was remembered as being charming and very charismatic. He had been released from the Prince Albert Penitentiary in that year after serving two years for car theft and a breaking and entering at the Treasury Branch in Bowdoin. So like I said, not petty crimes, but not violent crimes. He actually had another year left on his sentence to serve, but about 40 inmates were released in 1959, early from Prince Albert. In 1956, the Fautal Report came out on the penitentiary system, and one of the key recommendations was to create a parole board. So a new parole act was passed in 1959, and the National Parole Board was created. And so it now had the power and the authority to make decisions about inmates and their um, entitlement to be released on a case-by-case basis. In its first year, Canada's National Parole Board granted 994 paroles, which was an increase of 42% over 1955. 
So Robert was released from prison on or around June 20th of 1959 with $31.81 and returned to Stetler and to the family home, but left again shortly after to go to Edmonton. On Saturday, June 27th, he was noticed by police suddenly driving a rather expensive-looking convertible in the Stetler area. And of course, based on his history of car theft, the police stopped them, stopped him to ask him some questions. Initially, he told the police that he had traded his dad's 1958 station Chevy station wagon in for the convertible and that his dad had wanted him to do that. He had his dad's wallet on him and had purchased the convertible in Edmonton in his dad's name. Right away, the cops didn't buy the story because why would a father of five young kids with five young kids at home trade a station wagon for a convertible? In the trunk of the car, they found a box with family documents, including birth certificates, insurance policies, his father's marriage certificate, and the children's report cards. He was also carrying a suitcase with four sets of children's pajamas, new bed sheets, and a photo album with pictures of his mother. He had said that he had given his dad $4,100 for his family to move out to BC, and he was going to follow after them. Um, after closing up the house and that kind of thing. But later they asked Ray Cook's best friend if he knew anything about that plan, and he said no. So Robert was arrested for what they called at the time false pretenses, which I think today would either be identity theft or fraud. A couple of officers did go out to the Cook house that night, but it was it was dark out and they didn't see anything concerning, so they left. But one of the Stetler RCMP officers thought that something was a little off, So he phoned the Red Deer RCMP detachment and asked if they would send out more officers the next morning to check out on Robert's story, um, maybe check with his dad if his story had actually been true. On Sunday morning, June 28, 1959, RCMP specialists entered the Cook family home on 52nd Street. The first thing that they saw was blood splattered on the TV set and on the wall behind the TV that looked like someone had tried to wipe it off. All of the sheets on all of the beds had been taken off, and there were blood splatters and stains, kind of what seemed like everywhere, but there was no sign of anyone. They also found Robert's blue prison jumper. Um, That was found along with a battered and kind of bent double-barrel shotgun under one of the mattresses. Now, this was kind of one of the areas of contention. Some reports say that the prison suit was soaked with blood, and other reports that say that it wasn't. But what the crime scene photos do show, which of course are in black and white, so it's hard to see things really clearly, is that there's a they did find a white shirt that was stained with blood, and it had the name or the words Ross, R-O-S-S, on it in bold letters. It looked kind of like a logo at that time. So police would try later to identify the owner of the shirt by checking with some of the laundries in and around Stetler, but they never did figure out whose shirt that was. And the gun was also not one that anyone in the Cook family owned. They put pictures of it in the newspaper asking anyone to come forward if they had information on it, but nobody did. In the garage, they saw that there was a like a big piece of card square cardboard on the floor that was covering a grease pit when they pulled the cardboard away well they were overwhelmed with the unmistakable smell of death and there were tires under the cardboard sort of stacked up 
and under the tires were the bodies of Ray Cook Sr., 53, Daisy May, 37, Gerald, 9, Patrick, 8, Christopher, 7, Kathy, 5, and little Linda May, 3, together in a macabre pile. Their bodies were all almost unidentifiable. On that day, one of the investigators told a media person, quote, We don't know if the gun has been fired or not. Our investigation is not complete. However, we are sure of one thing. It appears that the gun was used as a bludgeon to beat them to death. It is a terrible crime. And another officer was quoted by the Calgary Herald saying, quote, It was the muckiest job we'd ever had to handle. He probably regrets saying it that way. Autopsy reports showed that Ray and Daisy had died of shotgun wounds. The children had all been bludgeoned to death with the shotgun. All five children had skull fractures. They believe all of them had been killed on Thursday, June 25th. Constable Tom Roach of the RCMP read Cook his rights, and he was charged with, for some reason, only the murder of his father. And I never did figure out why that was, whether that was something that they did at the time that if there were multiple murders, I guess because they, maybe they had the death penalty, they only charged you with one of them because death was death. I'm, I'm really not sure why they, they only charged him with that, with the one murder. Anyways, Tom Roach said, quote, he broke down completely. He said, not dad, not mom, not the kids. He was crying. We had to leave him for a while and went back later and explained what the circumstances were. Robert was brought in the next day before Justice Fred Biggs, and he was ordered to stay at the Pinoca Mental Hospital, which is now actually called the Centennial Center for Mental Health and Brain Injury, for a 30-day psych assessment to be completed by Dr. Donald McKay. Robert's defense lawyer was David McNaughton, who was just a young lawyer at that time. He later went on to become a judge. Um, and in 2019, he was still talking about this case. He was 92 at the time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. On July 10th, Cook phoned his lawyer, McNaughton, and asked him if he could go to the gravesite of his family because he hadn't been allowed to attend the funerals. McNaughton told him that it just wasn't possible. Shortly after midnight on July 11th, Robert Cook escaped from Pinoca. In his cell, he discovered the bars over the window of his cell were loose, and he was able to push on them to loosen the screws that were holding them in place. He then, of course, had no problem hot-wiring a car and took off. He later rolled that vehicle near a place called Nevis and took off on foot, stealing another vehicle in Alex from a garage, and that one was discarded as being out of gas 10 miles from Bashaw, or Bashaw. The Calgary Herald ran an article on that day that said, in part, Police, describing 22-year-old Cook as extremely dangerous, wanted motorists not to pick up hitchhikers, and noted that the roadblocks, that roadblocks had been set up throughout the Pinoca and Red Deer areas. A car was stolen during the night in Pinoca, 
Police said they believe Cook may have been responsible but have warned motorists to beware of hitchhikers because the escapee would probably ditch the car with a known license number. On Tuesday, July 14th, they ran another article about the hysteria that his escape has caused, had caused, and that false leads and rumors, many of them believed to be brought on by fear, were adding confusion to what had already been termed the greatest manhunt in Alberta's history. People completely lost their minds and were convinced that there was a madman coming for everyone. So they published a a picture of a bunch of people saying, suspect strikes fear, residents around Nevis area unlimbered guns to guard their homes when word reached them that the murder suspect, Robert Raymond Cook of Stetler, had escaped from Pinoca Mental Hospital. O.C. Cornelson kept a rifle beside him and doors locked and said, quote, I would have shot fast and wounded him if he came around. Pictured on the other side of the page was two women saying Mrs. Mary Call and Mrs. Garnet Gibson guard their families with shotguns. He was actually found on a pig farm in a pig shed hiding out on July 15th in Bashaw and was unarmed. The case has continued to be debated as to whether or not Robert Cook was guilty or not. The first trial was held in Red Deer, and a jury found him guilty in about a half an hour. He, of course, appealed that, saying that Justice Greshock of the first trial didn't allow testimony from one particular witness. So a second trial was ordered in Edmonton, and at that trial, Cook took the stand himself, actually giving kind of an alibi. In October of 1959, he wrote a letter to his lawyer, David McNaughton, that said, quote, I have some information that I did not want to give out on where I was and what I was doing on the Thursday night. He admitted that he had been in Edmonton with his friend Albert Victor Sonny Wilson and did a break and enter at Cosmo Cleaners. He said that then he drove to Bowdoin to get some cash that he had hidden there back in 1957 and then drove back to Edmonton and returned the car to the lot that he had taken, and then just kind of walked around. He said, quote, because I had been locked up for two years. He testified, if you found out your family was all killed and you'd been charged with murder, it's hard to understand. The only thing I knew about the whole thing was that I didn't do it. Now, McNaughton, for his part, has said, and continued to say up until 2019, to say that he might not necessarily be innocent, but under the law, he wasn't guilty. He was quoted by CBC in 2019 as saying, quote, he never ever admitted to me or anyone else that he'd done this. And I don't know. And that's why the people still argue about it. <laughs> it's not a case of I'm sure he's innocent. It's that I'm not sure he's guilty. The owner of this Ross t-shirt was never found. The gun was never linked to him. And he did, at the time when he was arrested, he did not have any blood on his shoes. Um, But the prosecution and those that think he's guilty say that the timing of that he steals this car, comes back with all the documents in the car, and it turns out that his family is dead, doesn't look good for him. Um, And then, of course, there's his history of past criminal behavior. The theory was that he wanted his family to move out to BC. And when his dad said no to that, that he went back to the house with a stolen gun, which, of course, that gun also was never pinned to him uh, and killed the entire family. So it was all circumstantial evidence, but none of it looked good for him. 
The jury at the second trial found him guilty on December 10th, 1959. Given an opportunity to speak before being sentenced, he said, I didn't do this. I couldn't have done it. And, of course, he was sentenced to be hanged. While waiting for his execution from his jail cell, he wrote a poem from Fort Saskatchewan and signed it, Robert R. Cook, Care of Death Cell. And then it's kind of cut off there, but it probably quotes the number of the cell that he was in. Um, You can view the, the entire letter if you want at the legalarchives.ca slash project slash last dash man dash hanged. The last line of the poem reads, So I ask you, is it strange that I'm sentenced on the noose while my family's killer is on the loose? I've heard of justice, but where can it be? I looked in the dictionary, behold, there it is to see. When I sent for my lawyer, he just shook his head. Justice will only come long after you're dead. So you people of the world take note It's murder when the innocent die at the end of a rope. Letters were sent to the Solicitor General of Canada and the Prime Minister John Diefenbaker requesting that the sentence be commuted. David McNaughton received a telegraph on November 14th stating that the Governor General would not interfere with the sentence. So on November 15th, 1960, he was the last man to be hanged in Alberta in the gallows of Fort Saskatchewan Provincial Jail at midnight. He was pronounced dead at 12.19 a.m. He was the last of 29 people that were killed there between 1916 and 1960. He donated his eyes to the Edmonton Eye Bank and donated his body to the University of Alberta Hospital for medical research. David McNaughton's daughter Pamela, herself a retired lawyer, told CBC in November 2020 that she has been going through the court transcripts and plans to produce her own serial podcast exploring the case, including testimony from the medical examiner and witnesses. Quote, I quite frankly don't see how he could have done it. I don't think there's been a real depth investigation of this, so I'm going to give it a go. So I am definitely going to be looking for that, and I will let you guys know if I find out anything. And for those of you that are looking for a short history, Canada abolished the death penalty in what they call de facto, which is in like actual practice, in January of 1963. Um, and then in what they call de jure, or de jure, which it means actually written in law, and not actually until September of 1999. There was still capital punishment for the murder of police officers and corrections officers until 1973, but for all intents and purposes, the last execution in Canada was in December of 1962. The reason for the difference in those dates, 1963 to 1999, is mostly due to offenses under the National Defense Act, things like treason, that still carried a mandatory death sentence, but nobody had actually been executed by the military since 1945. Canada only used hanging as a method of execution during its reign in what they called the long drop method, which is considered supposed to be more humane than the short drop, which results in strangulation rather than a broken neck. Uh, We executed 697 men and 13 women from 1867 until 1962. Capital punishment, of course, was replaced in Canada with mandatory life sentences without parole eligibility until the person has served at least 25 years for the first-degree murder. Uh, And you can all debate capital punishment amongst yourselves. 
Just for fun, I found a uh, public service announcement from the 1950s that you might enjoy. I think it's still relevant today. Youth is a time for fun, pranks and jokes, of ice cream cones and chocolate sodas. Youth is a time for getting a job, for finding one's place in the world. But sometimes in these troubled days, the very thoughtlessness of youth has led to a living nightmare. Addiction to drugs. What's that? H. H? What's H? That's a lot. It's heroin. Will it make me sick like the reefers did? Marty's story is like many of the others. It started with marijuana cigarettes. Come on, it's my turn next. Gee, Duke, where'd you get him? I, uh, I know a guy. Three for a buck. Let me try. He was determined to be one of the gang if it killed him. And it almost did. Several weeks later, after smoking reefers, Marty's befogged brain hit on a clever way to open pop bottles. Later, Stan went to the hospital for swallowing broken glass. Marty badly cut the inside of his mouth, though he didn't even know it at the time. Before long, Marty was hooked, physically dependent on heroin. Nothing mattered but the ever-present craving for the drugs. He had given up interest in everything else. And that was the case of Robert Raymond Cook. I hope that you will all join me again next week for another fascinating case that you will continue to do the rates on Apple. Apparently you can uh, rate on Spotify now as well. Um, But I know that my analytics say that most of you are listening on Apple. So if you could continue to do your downloads, your rates and reviews there, that would be fantastic. And as I always say, word of mouth is my best advertising. So spread the words to your family and friends that you think might like my podcast. And as always, thank you so much for listening. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 